0: So Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for the Lord's help for this this morning. Father, um, thank you for meeting us where we are at this morning. Uh, whether we are up high, whether we are down low in the dust. You are present with us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to see more of Jesus this morning. Would you soften our hearts so that we can receive whatever, whatever truth and whatever grace that you have for us. It's in the good name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. So... The word rebel, what came to mind? We got Star Wars? Yes, that's great. That's what came to mind for me first. Um, See, the word rebel, rebel, when you hear it, you might have an instinctive kind of negative reaction to that. Rebels are agents of chaos. For the sake of order and civilization, they need to be quelled. For others, rebel is a positive word. You want to be on the side of the rebel alliance, fighting against the evil, oppressive empire. But but even in our own country's history, right, we have a confused relationship with rebellion. Uh, Our nation started with a rebellion, even though we we brand it as a revolution, because that sounds a little bit better, and then we write musicals about it and sing, rise up, you know. Um, But then, on the flip side, uh, rebellion has a negative connotation when we think about the Civil War, for example. Or even when we think about one year ago in January when a mob stormed the Capitol building and tried to overturn an election, rebellions can be good, can be bad, and there's often debate about which one it is. How do we decide if a rebellion is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends on what the authority, you're, who, who, who is the authority that you're fighting against? Is it a good authority or a bad authority, you know? Darth Vader, clearly bad. You want to be on the side against Darth Vader. But unjust rebellion is when we are fighting against a good authority. Like in number 16, The Rebellion of Korah, in which a group of people challenged the authority of Moses and of God and they were subsequently swallowed up by the earth. It does not end well to rebel against a good ruler. But our passage of Scripture this morning is not ultimately about just human versus human conflict. It's about something more than that. This is a psalm about all of life. The psalmist is describing the entire human experience. He's trying to summarize specifically all the problems in the world. And this psalm frames the entire story of what it means to be human as a story of active rebellion against God. The Adam and Eve narrative in Genesis 3 is sometimes called the fall of man. But I don't really like that phrase very much because it sounds like we just sort of tripped into sin. Like, oh, no, I fell. Rather, what happens in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve spit in the face of God. And human beings have been doing so ever since. And if we believe that God is the righteous ruler of anything, of everything then anything opposing him will always put us in the wrong. Psalm 2 can give us a better understanding of what's wrong with human beings, what's wrong with the world at large. Why is it so often in chaos? But Psalm 2 does more than tell us what's wrong with the world and wrong with our own hearts. It also tells us what God is doing to fix it. Last week, Kyle preached on Psalm 1, where we're told that there are really two ways of life— you have the way of life that listens to the influence of mockers and sinners and scoffers. Or you have the way of life that delights and meditates on God's word. So in Psalm 1, all of life is presented as those two choices. You have the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. But in Psalm 2, that choice is presented a little bit differently. Now it's the choice between rebellion against God or submission To his rule and reign. And as I've been personally meditating on on Psalm 2, I found it so helpful for just giving me a, a worldview and a framework to think about the whole world and then what is my place in it. So, my hope this morning is to show that this ancient, even, and yeah, we can say it, somewhat strange poem is actually really relevant for us and profoundly practical. So for those who follow Jesus, my hope is that this would give you a a new understanding of of who Jesus is, what he came to do. If you don't follow Jesus, if you're not a Christian, uh, my hope is to show you that even the psalm can offer a really robust worldview that can explain what's going wrong in the world and what is the solution. So if you're taking notes this morning, our big idea that we're going to unpack is this. Because Jesus is our king, we must abandon our rebellion and embrace his authority. Because Jesus is our king, we must abandon our rebellion and embrace his authority. And this psalm has three movements. I've, I've broken it down. Uh, I'm calling verses 1 to 3, the rebellion, verses 4 to 9, the reply, and then verses 10 to 12, the refuge. The rebellion, the reply, the refuge. Three R's, easy to remember. You're welcome. All right, so look with me again at verse 1 as we look at the rebellion. This psalm begins with a question. Why? Why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The tone is astonishment at the behavior of the nations. And, and we're meant to picture the entire world in confusion and madness and mess and then you look at the front page of the newspaper and you go, oh, I don't have to imagine it all that w- much. And so we ask ourselves, what's, what's causing all of this uproar? Why do the nations rage? Verse 2 tells us, the kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Or another way to translate it is the kings of the earth take their stand. It's military language. The rulers conspire together. There is an alliance being formed, a, a global coalition of world powers who are rebelling against God and against another individual who's called God's anointed. And we're, we're going to come back to that person in just a minute. But look down at verse three to see the demands of this axis of evil. What are their goals? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. In other words, let us be free. (laughs) Let us break loose from the influence and authority of God. Now, here's a key question for us. Has this actually ever happened? Has it it ever been the case that a group of world leaders came together and declared war on God? No, that's never happened before. So, So is this rebellion being described here? Is it just a fictional scenario? Is it a prophecy of the future? What's going on? Two observations that I think will help us here. First, notice in verse one that the problem is not just those who are leading the nations. It's the nations and the peoples themselves. Did you see that? In verse one, the nations are raging. The peoples are plotting. So while the kings and the rulers, they're sort of leading the rebellion, the real issue is that the whole world is in revolt against God. In other words, this isn't a political problem. This is a problem of the human heart. Second, it's really telling how these kings describe their relationship to God in verse 3. He sa- they say that he has us chained up, you know, bound, like in a straitjacket. like in the swaddle that we put Julian in, you know, and their their desire and their demand is to rule themselves, to to cast off any requirements or commands or law. In fact, here's an interesting connection. So the Hebrew word that's translated as plot in verse 1, the people's plotting in vain, is the same word in Psalm 1 that's translated as meditating on the law day and night. Plotting meditating. So, so either taking these two psalms together, either we are pondering the words of God or we are pondering how to break free from God's rule and be our own rulers instead. This is how the psalmist is describing the core problem of the world. All human beings, we're acting like Adam and Eve. We reject God's authority as the ruler of all things. Edward and Faith Tiber are two psychologists who developed a way of describing parenting styles. Uh, They came up with this quadrant here, and they said, basically, when you talk about parenting styles, there are two main factors. You have affection, and you have control. So here's how it works. In the upper left-hand quadrant, a parent with high affection but low control will be very permissive, right? The kids are loved, but they can do anything they want. Oh, come on, sweetheart, won't you just stop doing that thing? By contrast, in the lower right, a parent with low affection but high control will be a harsh authoritarian. Don't ask me why, just do what I say or else, Low affection and low control will be disengaged. The parents just aren't there physically or emotionally. Go away, just just leave me alone, do your own thing. But the healthiest parents are those who have high affection and high control, which they called authoritative. These parents have the flexibility to be both strict and loving at the same time. I love you, and that's why you're going to do what I tell you to do. (laughs) Why am I bringing this up? The reason is not only so you can, you know, think about your your own parents, and we don't have time to go into family histories, although that's really important. The reason is because this framework is about authority in general. It's not just about parents and kids. It's also about our relationship to the authority of God. See, in verses 1 to 3, the core issue in this rebellion is that it is a reaction against God's control. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If you believe that a good God, the only God that you could worship, is in the permissive category, where he's full of love, but he shouldn't really give commandments or, or set any boundaries, then you are headed down the road of saying, let us burst their bonds apart. How dare God try and make demands of me, try and exert control over my life. I just want a really affectionate God. But God is not permissive. He's not disengaged. And hear this, church, he's also not authoritarian. (laughs) Some of you need to hear that. He is authoritative, high affection, and high control. In the book of Hosea, God uses the metaphor of a farmer caring for an animal to describe his relationship to his people. And and notice as I read this, the same word for cords appears here as it did in Psalm 2. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. High affection High control, cords of kindness, bands of love. But the root issue of our own hearts is that we want ultimate control of ourselves. Thank you very much. Intrinsically, many of us believe that freedom is ultimate self-determination. I set the rules for my life, and how dare you try and set a rule for my life? I am the master of my fate. But Psalm 2, as well as the rest of the Bible, challenges that view. According to the scriptures, true freedom is not found in casting off the rule of God, but in living under his good authority and finding the right boundaries that he is setting. Ironically, pursuing self-rule will lead you into greater bondage. When everyone is seeking what is best for them, nobody ends up winning. It's not hard to see that in our world right now. People hurt other people in the name of my freedoms, my rights. The poor and the vulnerable become even more marginalized. Anarchy benefits no one. What we need instead is a good king who will bring order who will bring justice, who will bring true freedom because he loves us with high affection. Psalm 2 then provokes us to ask, "Am, am I complicit in this rebellion? Or to ask it in a more personal way, do you actually believe that God can make demands of you? Is your ideal God one who loves you from afar but he really shouldn't get involved in your business. Or are you fine with God giving you advice and self help? You love opening the Word. Look, I'm meditating on the Word. It fills me with warm fuzzies. But then as soon as you come across something that sounds like a command, you go, Oh, put that book down and just sort of leave it there. Is there a clear commandment or demand in scripture that you ignore as as though God's rule and reign over your life doesn't really have authority. Maybe it has authority over most things. Oh, but there's that one area. I don't want God to speak about that. My finances, my treatment of strangers, my sexual behavior, the words I use. God doesn't have a right to speak over this. Verse one tells us that, yeah, we are all complicit. We in some way have allied with the rebellion. So it's time to ask yourself honestly in what ways or in what areas do I mutter, I wish I was free from God? Uh, where, Where do you wish that God had low control over your life? That's the source of rebellion in your own heart. Then we move on to God's reply in verse four. Look at it with me. This is great. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. When I was two or three years old, my grandpa was babysitting me. And uh, I I heard this story later on. Apparently, he told me to do something, and I didn't want to do it. And so I crossed my arms, and I just went to the corner, and I muttered, Butthead. (laughs) Butthead. And my grandpa, as he was telling me this story, he said, I could barely keep from laughing. I was just trying to keep a stern face on at this little toddler calling me a butthead, you know? And that's how I'm picturing God in in verse four. Uh, The Lord, just laughing at the human beings he created, now starting a mutiny against him, right? We're told that God does five things. He laughs, he mocks, he speaks, He terrifies, and most importantly, what it's leading to, he appoints a king. In response to the kings of the earth forming an insurgent alliance, God sets a king over them. A king of kings, if you will. And then in verse 7, the point of view narration shifts. Did you notice that? Now we are hearing this king actually speaking. He says, God made a royal decree, but here's the weird thing. When he coronated me, he also adopted me. Did you notice that? The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Just as God is described as the ruler of all things, he sits on a throne. So too does this anointed one have authority even over kings. He's the emperor not like Palpatine, I guess. <laughs> but immediately after he's given his heritage, after he's given his, his inheritance, after God sets the crown on his head and hands him the world and says, anointed one, this is yours. What does he do with the world? He smashes it apart. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What is going on here? One of my favorite things about the Bible is that it is not just a book. Uh, It's not just a bunch of sort of separate, non-related books. Like, have you ever tried to go book shopping at Goodwill or Savers and look at that shelf? Like, there's no organization here. The Bible is not like that. It's an interconnected conversation over centuries. See, Psalm 2 itself is a poetic meditation on another part of the Bible, 2 Samuel 7, a really important chapter. I'm just going to read a few verses from it. God comes to King David. King David, one of the greatest kings in the Bible. And he said this, and watch for the connections to our psalm. Because our psalm, or the poet of it, is meditating and thinking about 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. There's a lot just jam-packed in there, but I'm gonna pull out just two important threads and connections. First, God promises to do exactly what we saw in Psalm 2. He appoints a king, and then he adopts him. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. And that, that family language is meant to emphasize just how closely this king of kings will be to God. They'll be like a family together. Here's the second thing, though. There's that fascinating line about what would happen if this king were to fail or sin. Look at verse 14. When he commits iniquity, or another way to say it is if he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Notice our word rod shows up again. Break them with a rod of iron. I will discipline him with the rod of men. See, in Psalm 2, it's the nations, it's the world, it's the enemies of God who get smashed and broken. But in 2 Samuel 7, it's the king himself who will take the beating with the stripes of the sons of men. This king will both punish evildoers and he will take their punishment for himself. And it's not difficult to see where I'm going with this. If your mind jumped to Jesus Christ, then you're in good company. Especially when I tell you that the Hebrew word for anointed one in in Psalm 2 is Mashiach, Messiah, or Christ in Greek. See, the earliest followers of Jesus read Psalm 2 as speaking of Jesus. In your own time, it's fascinating. Go and look at Acts chapter 4. In it, Christians were being imprisoned for proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the king of kings. And this church is praying through the psalm to try and understand why are we being persecuted? It's because they had pledged allegiance to the anointed one, the one who would execute justice on evil, smashing God's enemies like taking a ceramic bowl and throwing it on the floor. And not only that, Because of 2 Samuel 7, the Mashiach would accept his people's iniquity and receive the punishment for justice on himself with the stripes of the sons of men. Let me just put it as plainly as I can. Jesus is the anointed one, the king of kings. And one day he will strike down and punish everyone who stays in rebellion against him. The nations may rage now, the peoples may plot, but they do so in vain, because one day their evil will end. And that is good news, because we want, we long for evil to end someday. And Jesus here is promising that I will be the one to end evil once and for all. But as 2 Samuel 7 tells us, the anointed one is also going to suffer for the sins of his people And Jesus did so on a bloody cross, broken, and bleeding, so that he could take the punishment that we traitors deserve. What do many countries do to traitors? They execute them, or at least they used to. Now imagine that instead, the gallows are there, you're walking up, the noose is around your neck the king or president or prime minister steps in and says, wait, 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 wait. I want that traitor to live. Hang me instead. That is what Jesus does for the rebels who fight against his rule, against his kingdom. God's reply to the rebellion is astonishing. He could have just smashed the world. He could have said, human beings, you don't like What I have given you, this good rule, this this good world, the image that I've put inside of you, you're rebelling against me, all right, wipe them out. But instead, he sends us a king, a better king, who will bring order where there is chaos, a king who will be part of God's own family, a king who will not let evil go unpunished, and what does this king offer to his royal subjects? That's where we're going in these last three verses. The refuge. Look with me at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Yeah, that makes sense, given what we just read about the Messiah sort of tossing up the world like a baseball and hitting it you know, with a rod of iron. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, the psalm started by asking the nations why are you in such an uproar and then it ends with a final plea an invitation and even an ultimatum the only hope for rebels and mutineers like us is surrender is submission full submission to the king and we're to do so with both fear and joy both worship and trembling both security and reverence. This is a recurring theme throughout the scriptures. The book of Proverbs opens and says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are never to be so familiar with God that we forget his sovereign power. We are never to be so terrified of God that we forget his merciful love. Let me just say that again, because if if you grasp this, the God of the Bible will make a lot more sense. We are never to be so familiar with God that we forget his sovereign power. And we are never to be so terrified of God that we forget his merciful love. It's like that famous exchange in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The last verse of Psalm 2 is where it all comes together. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, kissing the sun is, is likely a reference to paying homage to royalty, like when people kiss the ring of Queen Elizabeth, uh, or if you're a gangster, you kiss Don Corleone's ring in the Godfather, you know. So not kissing the sun, not surrendering, is tantamount to declaring war again and again and again on God, and to bring the judgment of rebellion upon yourself. We have all, in so many ways, defied. God. And there's only one possible way for us to be forgiven and for us to be safe. Remember our big idea, because Jesus is king, we must abandon our rebellion and embrace his authority. That's what the last line of this psalm says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's so good. Just write that phrase on a piece of paper and carry it with you all week long. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Just unpack it in your soul. Blessing, happiness, true freedom is given to all, any, everyone who takes refuge, who finds shelter, who runs into the fortress of him, Jesus Messiah, the King. There is no safety in rebellion. We need the king's protection. I remember once walking through Castle Cardiff in Wales. Uh, there's a picture of it right there. It was built in the 11th century on top of an old Roman fort that was built around the time of Jesus. So it's been there a while, and it's been the site of many, many conflicts throughout the years. And as you're walking in, even though it's been you know, redone and, and patched up, you can still see chips in the stonework where catapults or cannonballs have just bombarded this castle. If if an enemy army was coming toward me, that is where I would want to be, right? You feel safety and security as you walk in. And yet as strong as that castle is, as strong as any fortress is, what we're told in Psalm 2 is that the safest place on earth is not a location, it's a person. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in him, Rock Hill. Take refuge in him when you sin, because he is the king who laid down his crown and died on a cross. Take refuge in him when you suffer, because he is the king who rose from the dead and defeated our enemy death. He is making all things new. Take refuge in him when you stumble and falter, because he is the king who will not let you perish. Take refuge in him when the enemy is whispering propaganda and doubt in your ears. Because he is the king who is going to break the enemy with a rod of iron. Take refuge in him and nowhere else. How? By surrendering. I give it up, Lord. I give up the fight. I want to serve you. I want to follow your rule and no one else. It's like Jesus himself prayed, Lord, King, not my will, but yours be done. And then you embrace his authority. Even when it's difficult, his rules, his control, his commands are good. Not only for you, but for this people, for the whole world, they're good. He binds us in relationship, with high affection, high control, cords of kindness, bands of love. I want to close by talking about why we chose to preach on Psalm 1 and 2 to uh, start the year. The book of Psalms is the prayer book for the corporate worship of of God's people, and it, it describes the whole human experience, the whole breadth of it, right? The triumphs and the trials, the ups and the downs, But Psalms 1 and 2 were not put at the beginning of the book because they were the first Psalms ever written. Oh, I guess we'll just stick them at the beginning. They were intentionally put there, and they were connected and linked through a lot of different words and phrases. I already mentioned that the Hebrew word for meditate and plot is is the same word, uh, but there are other connections, the clearest one being the word blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, blessed. Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. When you take them together, these two psalms, like Kyle said, they summarize the good life, the the core and the foundation of what a life with God should look like. In Psalm 1, the good life is found by being rooted in the words of God, in Psalm 2, the good life is found by taking refuge in the anointed one. Love the Bible and love King Jesus. That's what it boils down to. And, and those should be the New Year's resolutions for every person here. Love the Bible and love King Jesus. If we do that, we're, we won't go astray. We won't go wrong. Last week, Kyle asked this question. How is 2022 going to be different or, or even better than 2020? 2021. What will make this a good year? What will make it so that no matter what circumstances may come, no matter what funerals happen, no matter what tragedies come upon us, what will make it so that we are blessed? Read Psalms 1 and 2. Love the Bible and love King Jesus. We do this on a corporate, sort of church-wide Level. We will always preach the Bible here. We will always preach Jesus here. And in in fact, our next sermon series that's going to start next week with an overview sermon is going to be walking through all 66 books of the Bible and seeing how they all point to Jesus. But we also do this on a, a smaller group level. See, our city groups are meant to be places where we are meditating together on the Word, applying it to our lives, and also where we're spurring each other on to obedience to the king. And then we do it on a personal level. How will you delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night? And then from today's psalm, how will you abandon your rebellion and embrace God's authority, his good will for you? How will you declare allegiance to the Son of God, the King of kings, who will quell all rebellion but who will give a refuge, who will be a refuge for any who come to him. Ponder these questions this week. I'll pray for the Lord's help now. Father, thank you for appointing a king and not leaving us in a state of chaos and rebellion. Jesus, thank you for coming for living the life we should have lived, for dying the death we deserved, for rising again to give us hope for new life. Holy Spirit, would you take Psalm 2 and bury it deep into our hearts? Help us to surrender. Open our eyes to the parts of our lives where we are still in rebellion. Give us a new heart. By the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're now going to turn our eyes to the communion table. This is where Jesus, the king, he's inviting us to a royal feast, right? Open to all those who love him and serve him. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? It's because when we taste the bread and the juice, we are remembering the king's coronation. See, unlike any other king in history, this king had a crown of thorns first, He sat upon the throne only by dying. And so we get to celebrate that and celebrate the new life that he is bringing by defeating our worst enemy, death. So when we take communion, when you walk down the aisle and you take the elements, you are surrendering. You are declaring allegiance. Week after week, you're saying, Jesus, you're my king. I'm sorry for the rebellion that is still in me. Jesus, you're my king. I'm sorry for the rebellion that is still in me. Jesus, you're my king, over and over again. If you are not a Christian, if you're still asking questions about Jesus, then I I hope this is a place where you you feel like you can ask those questions. Because we've all been there. Um, I'm really glad that you're here, and, and I encourage you to keep asking questions. To anyone, not just to the pastors. Um, my desire for you this morning is rather than taking the bread and the cup, that you would take what the bread and the cup symbolize, which is Jesus himself. But if you're not there yet, then that's okay. There's no shame, but I would ask that you would just stay in your seat as as people come up. Uh, If you call Jesus your king, if you call him your Lord and your Savior, you can come up the center aisle, somebody will hand you communion, and then you can Uh, exit down the sides. I think there's some contactless communion in the back too uh, if, if you would prefer that. But when you're ready, please come forward.